Good afternoon. It's Monday the 1st of March 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. And joining me via video link, uh, we've got David Scott and also Vanessa Bailey. Uh, welcome to you both. I'm just going to get straight on here because we've got a lot to cover today, as usual, uh, and start off with uh, mentioning the sad passing of uh, Ian R. Crane. Now, we're going to have a little bit more about Ian uh, later in the programme, but uh, Ian passed away on uh, on Thursday last week, uh, and that has uh, uh, there's been quite a lot of uh, of condolences uh, from everybody. So thank you very much for those, uh, and those will be passed along to Ian's family. Uh, you'll notice that Brian is not uh, with me today, and that's because of another uh, passing, and that is of Derek By. Derek, uh, a longtime campaigner uh, against uh, medical malpractice, uh, and in this case, uh, he was. Uh, he started on his campaigning uh, because of his daughter Helena, who was uh, who died following medical malpractice, uh, and then uh, he subsequently discovered uh, that uh, his daughter had had uh, body parts removed in order to try to cover the medical malpractice up. Um, so uh, there is an interview on the UK Column website if you have a look for uh, UK Column Live Special: Pediatric and Drug Company Abuse. Um, that was recorded uh, quite a number of years ago. Uh, the buys have been campaigning. Uh, on behalf of their daughter and others for, well, well over, well, since 1977, in fact. Um, so, a uh, bit of sad news to start, uh, but we'll move on with uh, with events of the day. And uh, well, we'll start off with variants, because variants are the uh, big thing at the moment, uh, the Brazil variant in particular. Now, why would variants be uh, continuing to be important? Well, of course, as we reported, I believe, on Monday's programme last week, uh, the lockdown would only be lifted, uh, according to the government, what they had four measures, but the, the final one was only if our assessment of the risks is not fundamentally changed by new variants of concern. Now, this phrase, variants of concern, is very interesting. The BBC used it in their coverage this morning, but you'll notice that there's a capital V and a capital C on there. That was the government's, uh, the way that they presented this. So we decided that we needed to label that as a trademark. Uh, they have decided to make this a trademark without question. Variants of concern is the phrase. Um, well, here is uh, uh, the wonderful uh, Nadim Zahawi, who's the vaccines minister, otherwise known as Anton LaVey. Um, and uh, he was saying this. Uh, we're working with several data points to try to locate this person. They could be asymptomatic. So the furore this morning is all about someone who took a test but didn't fill in the form to give their details. Uh, and so somebody has tested positive among a handful of people that have tested positive for this Brazilian variant. But one person has tested positive that can't be tracked down. And this is uh, causing a massive furore. Um, now, uh, of course, where did these variants come from in the first place? This is the question that we would like answered. And uh, uh, let's just remind ourselves that uh, Trevor Bedford uh, said uh, a few weeks ago, um, after around 10 months of relative quiescence, we've started to see some striking evolution of SARS-CoV-2 with a repeated evolutionary pattern in the SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern emerging from the UK, South Africa and Brazil. Uh, he said in SARS-CoV-2, the viral spike protein, in particular the receptor binding domain, is a locus for important viral evolution and is the primary target for the human immune response. Uh, my highly speculative hypothesis is that the emergence of these variant viruses arises in cases of chronic infection during which the immune system places great pressure on the virus to escape immunity and the virus does so by getting 
really good at getting into cells, okay? This issue of immunity escape is one that has was uh, being questioned uh, around the time that the uh, vaccines were being developed. Um, and uh, of course, when we look, I will just remind ourselves, when we look at the government uh, uh, website and we ask, uh, they're asking, what do we know about the new COVID-19 variants? Um, of course, the variants are uh, UK, uh, South Africa, and Brazil, as we mentioned a moment ago. And we have to remind ourselves that just by coincidence, and all we know at this point in time is that it is a coincidence, uh, the primary analysis of efficacy of the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine uh, was based on uh, cases coming from phase three UK, Brazilian and South African trials led by Oxford University and AstraZeneca. So uh, David, if I can welcome you to the program, first of all, and say, you know, the, there is a question here about whether these so-called new variants, particularly the three, these variants of concern with a capital V and a capital C, have come about as a result of immunity escapes following the vaccine trials. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And the fact that it's the, th the same three countries as uh, the vaccine trials were conducted in is, uh, is starting to stretch credibility if it's, if it's just a coincidence, because we're up in the one in a million chance, and that's where we should actually suspend um, uh, the, the, uh, the belief it's just, it's just a coincidence. And there are so many things we're being asked to believe that there are just coincidences, including, as we'll come to later, uh, spikes in, in deaths in the care homes immediately following the rollout of the vaccine. Um, and whilst uh, uh, correlation is not causation, these things require examination. And as for the new, the new variants, it all seems to be smoke and mirrors at the moment. The, the, the suggestions that they're more threatening, the suggestions that the vaccines don't work, the suggestions that the, they, might be, they might be more deadly or they might be more contagious or they might be more something. There doesn't seem to be anything really known, but yet this will be sufficient justification for prolonging the lockdown. Uh, that's certainly how it seems to be. Now, um, let's move on to testing. Um, and uh, we've got... Uh, the news uh, today, good news, uh, that uh, families and households with primary school, secondary school and college age children, uh, including childcare and support bubbles, they're going to be able to test themselves, ourselves, at least twice a week from home because we're going to get free tests. Uh, we're going to get these free tests from the government. Uh, these are going to be lateral flow tests. Um, so children going back to school, in, certainly in secondary school, are going to be given three tests in school. This is from March the 8th. And then following those three tests in school, uh, they will move to a, a home testing regime. But it seems not just uh, the uh, children, but also the parents. So um, I wonder why that would be. Uh, David, do you suspect, uh, again, justification for continuing lockdown? Well, the more t the testing's not reliable, so the more testing you've got, the more positive cases you've got. Uh, there's now pressure being applied to uh, all school teachers to carry out tests themselves and to certify their own tests and report back to the state their own health condition on a regular basis, multiple times a week. Um, this is a huge uh, data grab that we're all being invited to volunteer for, uh, but it's free. So free stuff from the government. What could go wrong? Uh, I can't imagine. Now, uh, let's uh, have a look at this. This is uh, from the BBC website. It's Panorama. It's saving serious children. Uh, and this, of course, was released in 2013 in order to try to justify or try to encourage uh, the general public to support 
uh, bombing of Syria at the time. Sadly, it didn't work. Um, I want to, the reason, I, you'll see why I'm bringing this up in a second, but uh, here is uh, a blog from Robert Stewart, blog site uh, run by Robert Stewart, uh, Fabrication in BBC Panorama Saving Syria's Children. And I want to highlight this particular post. Uh, which is entitled Conflicting Accounts of First Victim and Other Discrepancies in Accounts by Dr. Saleh Hassan, Dr. Rola Hallam and Ian Pinnell. Now, Ian Pinnell working for the BBC, uh, the, the two doctors apparently uh, working on the ground in Syria at the time. And uh, so Robert making the point that uh, at 31 minutes in Saving Syria's Children, Dr. Saleh Hassan is shown attending the first alleged victim, a baby accompanied by his father, Ian Pennell's narration at this point states, no one's quite sure what happened. Only subsequently do the dozens of other alleged victims begin to arrive. This sequence of events is portrayed in several other accounts, including others given by Dr. Hassan. Uh, and of course, the victims are, were allegedly of a napalm uh, bomb, bombing. Uh, and uh, however, uh, Robert goes on to say, in an interview with Australian broadcaster ABC on 27th of November 2013, Dr. Hassan gives an entirely contradictory account. So why are we bringing this up now? Well, it turns out that this morning, uh, the very same Dr. Hassan, who is now apparently working in South Wales for the NHS, uh, has published this, uh, dis or is taking part in a Channel 4 documentary uh, under the Dispatches uh, series. Uh, dispatches we filmed inside our COVID wards to ensure that the NHS went, th uh, what the we NHS went through is never forgotten. Um, and uh, so she's saying, uh, if we keep our glass half full, we see that flu cases have almost vanished uh, with mask wearing, social distancing and hand hygiene. We've inadvertently found a way to protect ourselves from our seasonal visitor. Uh, every winter we care for patients coughing and spluttering with flu-like symptoms and then anticipate our own bout. It had become almost an annual occurrence uh, the only uncertainty be, uh, being when, not if. Uh, but we will never forget, she says, in years to come, uh, when we've moved on to different jobs and places, we'll always remember who we stood by uh, and when we uh, fought this battle. Now, of course, uh, the question, if I can welcome Vanessa onto the programme uh, now. Vanessa, the question I've, that comes to my mind, first of all, is uh, will she be moving on to uh, different jobs? Because uh, it seems to me that uh, she's got a career uh, built in uh, government propaganda here? Well, in, in crisis acting, I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, I really, I, I shouldn't mock the BBC, but then again, <laughs> they do uh, invite it. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, it, it's, I, I mean, I, I think I commented on Twitter today that the, the BBC has ceased to be remotely fit for purpose. It is effectively the Saatchi and Saatchi of the British government connected to British intelligence, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, yes, well, it's a, it's a fair enough opinion now, but of course, this particular program is Channel 4, and, and actually, you know, when we come to uh, discussions well, about Syria, yeah. BBC and Channel 4 have very much been in the, uh, working in lockstep on, the, on these uh, issues. Yeah, exactly. I mean, let's not forget that the BBC researcher on the recent May Day series, Whitewash of the White Helmets and James Lemessurier, the former or believed to be former MI6 founder of the White Helmets, um, used as a researcher Abed Al-Qadir Habak. 
who had previously been showcased by Channel 4 in a production called Up Close with the Rebels, which they rapidly pulled when they realised that the rebel that they were up close with had, uh, a few months previously, beheaded a 12-year-old child in Aleppo. Uh, and, and so the, the cross-reference there between the BBC and Channel 4, you know, the, the use of UK Foreign Office trained citizen journalists and activists infiltrated into Syria to provide propaganda to criminalize the Syrian government were being used across the board by Channel 4. When, when I challenged the BBC on the use of Habak as a researcher and as a witness in the Mayday series, their response to me, yeah, but lots of other channels used him. <laughs> I mean, that was literally the BBC response to me. I've paraphrased it. But that's effectively their, their entire response when it's pointed out to them that a researcher, one, conflict of interest, he was trained by the British Foreign Office, not declared. Two, he had clearly worked with actual war crime uh, committers in Syria, the beheaders of children. Uh, yes. Well, of course, that's the type of... Uh, uh excuse you here from from five-year-old children but anyway let's uh, let's move we'll be coming back to this issue of uh, of the bbc in syria later on in the program but uh, let's uh, move on to this uh, now uh, brian was talking about shawadi wadi uh, promoting or encouraging uh, vaccine uh, take-up uh, last week uh, david but then we had the queen the queen is um engaged in perhaps the least royal thing I've ever seen her do. Um, so now she's uh, another little box on a, uh, on a Zoom screen with many little boxes of people in, in, in video and she's very lamely paying um, kind of lip service to the government policy um, and talking about irrelevances like the, the needle didn't hurt her arm when it went in. So, so that's okay. And um, quite bizarrely talking about how she felt psychologically better after having had the vaccine. Now, for someone in her position with the resources she has to hand and presumably the, the research and uh, the, the connections and the research uh, capability and the connections that the palace have, there's really no excuse for her being less well informed than the average man or woman in the street the average doctor or nurse administering this. We know a great many people, a great many people have many serious concerns over the vaccine. We know what's been reported in the VARS database, but it would, it would appear that our monarch has never heard of any of this information, or if she has uh, felt it um, prudent just to toe the government line anyway. Um, well, it's not just uh, the Queen. Uh, the, in fact, the... the uh the efforts to persuade people to take the vaccine in the, in the UK are ramping up uh, exponentially. The uh, British Heart Foundation have now joined a campaign. Well, actually, they released this press release uh, towards the end of last week, and they said 13 other health charities. It's now 16 other health charities. So we've got uh, African Caribbean Leukemia Trust, Asthma UK, British Heart Foundation, British Liver Trust, British Lung Foundation, Cancer Research, Carers UK, Diabetes UK, Epilepsy Action, Kidney Care UK, Lupus UK, Macmillan Cancer Support, MenCap, uh, MS Society, Sickle Cell Society, and Terence Higgins Trust, uh, all uh, trying to convince people to set aside their hesitancy, as they call it, 
uh, and uh, take the vaccine. Now, what's interesting uh, about this is that none of these organisations uh, to date have said anything, as far as I know, about uh, the number of people that have died in the UK over the past year as a result of not receiving health care for the likes of cancer or heart conditions or these kinds of things. So there's that to be taken into account there when uh, deciding whether you uh, accept their message or not. Uh, but it's not just them. 38 Degrees have now decided that they are going to get on this as well. So uh, did you see the news? COVID-19 vaccine has been proven to drastically reduce the number of people suffering from serious illness and hospitalization, as well as saving lives. It's excellent news. We could soon be seeing our loved ones again and life could start getting back to normal. So again, we're offered the idea of hope. Um, well, look, 38 degrees in particular, I just, this is a bit of an aside, but I, I did want to just mention this and, and get Vanessa's thoughts on it. Um, because one of the other things that 38 degrees is promoting at the moment uh, is this, ban the import of cotton from Xinjiang region. And uh, they're saying the government of China is, is perpetrating human rights abuses uh, on a massive scale. Uh, and so on. Now, uh, this, of course, is a narrative that's uh, pushed very hard by the BBC, by Channel 4 and other mainstream press in the UK. But I just want to re remind people or maybe inform people if they don't know this, uh, that in fact, the Uyghur people in, in uh, Xinjiang have been uh, operating outside of China uh, within places like Afghanistan, uh, joining jih jihadists in Afghanistan. This is Deutsche Welle. Uh, what is driving the Uyghur Muslims to increasingly join the ranks of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But of course, it goes right back to when Russia was in Afghanistan uh, and uh, the, the CIA was uh, encouraging the Mujahideen to fight the Soviet military. Uh, and uh, if you look at uh, or find this uh, um, China article here from on Springer Link, uh, Retribution and Retaliation, Uyghur Separation and China's Security in Xinjiang. And again, they're making the point that uh, the, Uyghur, uh, the Uyghurs have been uh, uh, radicalized over the years. So uh, they're saying Uyghur militants using face, uh, fake Turkish passports to enter Afghanistan and Pakistan to join extremist groups and so on. This, the history of this, Vanessa, goes back uh, many, many years. Uh, and it's, it's something that most people aren't aware of. Uh, if particularly if they're listening to the current anti-Chinese uh, uh, rhetoric. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's quite extraordinary. Um, the Uyghurs, I believe there are, figures vary, but um, conservatively there's around 25,000 Uyghur radicals fighting in Idlib alongside Al-Qaeda, which of course is one of the reasons that China in particular has been a sort of silent ally of Syria, not a military ally as such, but it has provided vetoes at certain pivotal points in the conflict against Syria alongside Russia. Um, and, and part of that reason, of course, just as Russia is, is containing their Chechen radical element inside Syria, China is containing the Uyghur, the Uyghur radical element and trying to contain it and Syria and prevent it coming back to, to stir up trouble in Xinjiang. But the other point is, you know, and I made this point to someone on, on social media the other day. If, if your country, if, for example, a radical element uh, were to start up in somewhere like Kent and they were power multiplied by a hostile nation 
um, to, to carry out terrorist attacks against uh, the civilians of that province or that area of the country, what would you expect the government to do? Of course, in the case of our government in the UK, quite possibly they would arrest them, torture them, imprison them, incarcerate them, etc. Actually, what China is doing effectively is providing a de-radicalization program. Now, I haven't been to China. I haven't gone into those um, into those uh, areas or compounds wherever they are trying to ensure de-radicalization. But this seems to me to be a very sensible uh, policy to combat the radicalization that they know is being fomented yet again by the US. Why? To derail the Silk Road project where the Xinjiang, pro the, the Xinjiang province um, basically it covers part of that project, the Silk Road project. So clearly this is about US economic um, and hybrid warfare against China. And of course, as soon as you see a narrative being amplified by organizations like the BBC, you should start questioning it. Uh, indeed. Uh, David, just before we move back to uh, COVID matters, have you got any thoughts on this? The, the degree to which um, the Chinese government is oppressive has certainly in the past been unlimited. Now it seems to be less so, and now it's no longer clear whether they're more oppressive to their people generally uh, than we are to ours. Uh, the degree to which um, dissident views are suppressed in the UK at the very least rivals um, the degree to which they're suppressed in China. Um, I think we have to get away from the casual uh, assumption that uh, the West is uh, the paragon of virtue and the East is uh, the, um, the, the, the uh, location of despotism. That's not true anymore. We see it every day. Every time we try to go to the shops, we see this. And um, so the all things must be examined much more carefully and no lazy assumptions regarding the moral superiority of the West are any longer uh, capable of being upheld. Uh, yes, indeed. Right. Thank you for that. Now, let's come back to the UK then. And, uh, and Peter Hitchens, uh, this has turned out to be a somewhat controversial article uh, by Peter Hitchens in the Mail on Sunday. Uh, so the title is, I've had the COVID jab uh, and it has cost me and all it cost me was my freedom. So let's just have a look at uh, some of the things that he says here. Uh, first of all, so sorry, Your Majesty, but I've had my first COVID vaccination for wholly selfish reasons. Uh, a very important part of my family now lives abroad and I'm deeply tired of not being able to see them. Uh, I get the strong sense that any sort of travel will be impossible if I don't have the necessary vaccine certificate. Uh, so I've been more or less forced to have an immunization I would not otherwise have bothered with. Uh, he said, for me, the vaccination was a gloomy submission to a new world of excessive safety and regulation. I tried to fight against it, but I lost. Uh, and he says, so we are just going to be under the, uh, the we're, we're, sorry. And so we're just going, we are just going to be under <laughs> surveillance a lot more, recorded a lot more and bossed about a lot more. Uh, and he ended up by saying, uh, and if you think COVID is as dangerous as them, I certainly want, uh, would, don't want to put you off the jab. Indeed, I don't want you to put off 
in any way. It's your business and not mine. So he's, he's talking there about uh, uh, it being a personal decision about whether to have it or not. Uh, David, I'm just, uh, uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? It's, many people have been disappointed that uh, uh, Peter Hitchens has, uh, has written this particular blog post. Yes, I, and I must admit I was disappointed when I first heard, heard that they'd done this uh, because the, the essential issue here is that um, your, your actions define you. Um, talk is cheap. The, the, the nature of humanity is talk is cheap. People put forward all sorts of opinions, all sorts of uh, high ground is claimed, all sorts of um, virtue is signalled. When, they, when push comes to shove, what do they do? When they go into the shop, what do they buy? When they live their lives, how do they live it? What decisions do they actually make? So what this is doing is whatever um, words that it's surrounded with, Peter Hitchens is saying to the state, I will comply. You will introduce uh, additional tyranny and I will comply. Now, we all have sympathy for anyone who is in the any of the huge variety of difficult situations with relatives, with travel being difficult, with huge, for many people, huge financial pressures. And, and no one's going to go and point the finger and say, you are, uh, you are a, a, an insufficient human being, and I, in those circumstances, would have done it better. Because no one can say that. You don't, you don't walk another... You don't walk a mile in the other man's shoes. Um, but it's nonetheless disappointing that his actions have said that in the final analysis, he, he will yield to the power of the state. What did he describe it as? The new Jerusalem in which we allow the state to boss us around even more in the name of our own good. It's now coming into being, he says. So... You know, this, you know, he's pointing at the religious aspects of this, the utopian aspects of this, and the totalitarian aspects of this, in all of which he's right. But it's just disappointing he's doing it against the background of saying, from his point of view, there's nothing can, can be done, and he is essentially surrendering to it. Um, Vanessa, um, you've had a bit of communication uh, with him over the last... Uh few hours on this. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I have to say it's the first time Lisa Hitchens has ever engaged with me publicly on Twitter. Uh, you know, and I, I think it was in reply to one of his tweets that I just said, well, okay. I, no, I know what it was. He put out some spurious polls, uh, presumably uh, fortifying his position that resistance was futile. Um, and so my comment basically is, well, all right, um, you know, for that, you're going to throw for, for some ridiculous government funded poll, uh, which we know to be spurious in the extreme, you're going to throw the resistance under the bus. And I simply said, well, better we know now than later, which then prompted him to reply, I think, three tweets to me, one in which was uh, virtue signaling about his efforts against um, Tony Blair, Iraq and so on. And, and, and as my response was, well, that makes it even more disappointing. Um, that you're throwing the towel in right now. His final tweet, um, and I'll read this out, liberty is unpopular in this country. 
according to Peter Hitchens. I thought the lockdown policy so outrageous and ill-founded that this might change. After 11 months of unrelenting combat, well, well done, Peter. You know, good job Syria didn't give up after 11 months of unrelenting combat from the imperialist bloc. I have to admit I was wrong. Liberty is still unpopular perhaps for Hitchens, but not for many others in the UK. I see no point in pretending otherwise. Look, a number of people came back to me and said, yes, but, you know, it's his personal choice if he wants to take the vaccine. I completely agree. But don't make your choice public. Do not make your choice a way of surrendering publicly and persuading others, in other words, your followers, that it is futile to resist, that what is coming, the wave of totalitarian fascism that is coming is unstoppable. And that's effectively what he's done as a powerful influencer on social media and in the media. And for that reason, I find it disappointing, not surprising. Let's move on, because clearly he no longer represents the values we all uphold as as fighting for freedom, as resistance against what is a global power grab by the parasite predator class. I'm not abandoning those principles. And the majority of his followers, when you read the replies to him, are not abandoning it. So leave him, let him surrender to it. That's his choice. Um, but of course, it's not just a David. It's not just a question of uh, of liberty. That that's a very big part of it. But there's also the question of uh, what has the effect of the lockdown policy been in terms of the uh, health, uh, mental health, the health care in this country, and how many of the people that have sadly died in the last uh, 12 months have died as a result of uh, coronavirus and how many have died as a result of the lockdown policy. And I think we've made a case on that. We have repeatedly, uh, be it suicide, be it untreated cancer, uh, be it the virtual suspension of the NHS, and certainly the isolation of all the care homes and old folks' homes from any substantive medical support whatsoever during the first lockdown, uh, this has caused enormous numbers of lives. Um, which brings us on to uh, deaths in Scottish care homes. Uh, and uh, uh, Go ahead. Yes, this this graph I picked from up from Twitter, the the originator, as far as I can determine, is a Joel Smalley who who assembled the, the graph from the information provided on the, the Scottish government's own website. Uh, the the graph links to the original data produced by by the, the Scottish government, and I certainly know from looking at that data, the trends shown in this graph are are accurate, and what it shows is a, a huge wave of COVID-related deaths following two to three weeks after the, the wave of uh, the COVID vaccinations going through the care homes. Um, the, the, the relationship between the two is most striking um, and really requires a thorough study and explanation. This looks on the face of it like the COVID vaccination has been killing people in care homes. Um, and uh, well, where does that take us then? Well, one other graph, just one other graph that, that I, I thought this was very good. Uh, it shows uh, against an index of how, how stringent the lockdown and anti-COVID measures introduced by the state is, uh, plotted against the death rate for COVID. 
or in this case, cases. There was two graphs. This one's cases. There's another one for cope for for deaths, which is very similar. Um, and what it shows is, firstly, a huge scatter. So there's not any tightly uh, tightly correlated uh, relationship. But if you draw a best fit line, um, the line goes up. That means the more um, stringent the lockdown policies, the more cases and the more deaths there are. And the best thing, as is so often the case, the best thing the government could have done was go fishing and do nothing. That would have, that would have seen the fewest numbers of deaths. That's what that graph indicates. Um, yes, and well, that takes us on to uh, another image. Um, and uh, well, you're going to have to explain this one. Yes, I just wanted to give an indication of A, resistance, and B, the knowledge of what we're dealing with here. This is, an, this is a still image from a demonstration uh, in Tel Aviv in Israel. Israel, we'll be covering this uh, in an in a interview with Gilad Atzman to be uh, published tomorrow. Uh, is, Israel has the most advanced COVID vaccination program and has been the most um, stringent uh, uh, state in applying lockdown processes and lockdown restrictions upon its population. It is uh, the guinea pig. They've made the, their people the guinea pigs for the world COVID policy. Um, and they have a, what's termed a green passport. That's a vaccine passport that you get if you've had COVID and you, you, you're, you're now viewed as immune, or if you've had both um, parts of the uh, vaccination injection. So what this is, is a sign that shows the green passport and an arrow that this leads to the yellow star and an arrow that this leads to having numbers tattooed on your forearm. And uh, from a crowd demonstrating in Tel Aviv, I thought that showed A, a correct understanding of the severity of the situation and um, a criticism that is unanswerable. Um, we should just note, David, and remind everybody, of course, that Piers Corbyn uh, has been arrested uh, and a, a number of weeks ago, obviously out on bail, uh, for making a similar point in a slightly different way. Uh, that type of point is, is considered uh, not appropriate in this country. Well, so many things now, so many, we'll come to this again later in the news, so many avenues of legitimate opinion are now being criminalised, um, that our, our freedoms are visibly ebbing by the day. Yes, indeed. Uh, right. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options uh, to join us there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, and do uh, share our material on the various platforms. Uh, and as you'll notice that we are on Odyssey uh, now as uh, as well as uh, the others. Uh, now let's uh, let's come back on to uh, Ian R. Crane. Uh, now Ian, of course, uh, stalwart campaigner for many many years. Uh, he ran the Alternative View conferences each year, uh, but a lot of people aren't aware that prior to that he was uh, he was speaking on a regular regular basis, public speaking. He has done so much over the years uh, to encourage people. Uh, to un try to understand the world they're living in uh, to a degree. Now, the last uh, thing that he did, of course, and the thing that he became quite well known for um, was uh, as the man in the field. Um, so let's just uh, have a brief 
listen or watch of, uh, of one of his uh, live streams uh, from uh, the field. Well, good morning. This is uh, Ian R. Crane. It's the morning of uh, Friday, the 9th of February, 2018. Or if you uh, prefer, I believe it's day 1886, frack free in the UK since the moratorium was lifted on Thursday, not Friday, Thursday, the 13th of uh, December, uh, 2012. And uh, I'm back here in the southwest of England and have been here for a week catching up on some uh, other stuff and some research. And it's a wonderful morning. All the clouds are natural this morning. It's a beautiful sunrise and the bird song is just glorious. And that really uh, sums him up a lot because no matter how things, how bad things got, he always uh, kept a, jolly, a joviality about him. He was brilliant for this. Um, now, of course, one of the things, a long-time anti-fracking campaigner, um, he, uh, he approached me in, uh, I think it was 20, late 2013, uh, and asked if, if I would uh, help him produce uh, a number of programs for streaming out on the internet. One of those became Fracking Nightmare and from 2013 until 2018, uh, pretty much almost every week he was back in, no matter where he was in the country, he was back in the studio uh, to record Fracking Nightmare. Uh, the, the fracking campaign owes Ian Crane uh, a lot. Now, so let's just, uh, uh, let's just look at a, another short piece of video here. Now this uh, is uh, from David Ellison. Thank you very much for this, David. Um, and uh, Ian is speaking in the pub after they won uh, the, the uh, uh, court case which Quadrilla was attempting to bring, uh, which would have forced fracking campaigners into a protest pen in a field behind a hedge uh, rather than on the road. Uh, blocking the machinery, trying to get into the uh, frack site. Uh, so just have a listen to this. Today, though, you've actually kind of put yourself uh, in the firing line as well. I mean, um, when you stood up in court today and uh, put this case forward, uh, the judge made it quite clear that you would be eligible for any costs and such like as well. Want to be there, um, uh, you know, looking at costs and things. Is how does that affect you? When, when, you, when you told something like I mean, it's quite scary really, isn't it? Well, it, potentially, but um, I had the same situation, ironically, almost, well, I think it is exactly three years ago when we um, challenged the IGAS attempt to evict the camp from Barton Moss. And uh, there we did have legal representation, uh, and I'm, again, uh, recognising the contribution that Lindsay Johnson made and Lee Day, who commissioned uh, Lindsay. He did an absolutely outstanding job. Although we lost the, the hearing, he was successful in, um, in getting an appeal and the appeal date was set for July so the bottom line was that the camp was left unmolested for the whole duration of the Barton Moss campaign. Result? Uh, another result and then um, in um, uh, East Yorkshire uh, I challenged Rathney Energy, in fact I was trying to get their eviction hearing moved from London to Hull. Um, that, that was rejected and the judge did award costs on me against me uh, and I think it's now sort of fairly common knowledge that Rathlin pursued me for 18 months before they managed to get me in court and uh, then I won't bore you with all the details but after seven court hearings um, well let's put it this way Rathlin, as far as Rathlin are concerned I'm bankrupt <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so the bottom line is that uh, on the basis that I'm bankrupt uh, you know Quadrilla would have been chasing 
blood out of a proverbial stone. So in making me bankrupt, you know, the industry have effectively created a situation where I don't have anything to lose, so I can contest anything and everything. And he did at every opportunity. Um, so uh, David uh, Ellison just uh, mentioned this to me as, uh, as just before we came on air. So I thought it was really appropriate. The general may have gone, but Ian's army march on relentless. Ian woke a large number of people up to what's happening and encouraged them to stand up against it. His work within the anti-fracking campaign played a large part in its success. And I would echo that. Uh, David, uh, just uh, what are your thoughts? Well, um, like you, will I'll miss him. Um, larger than life character, uh, a, a lightness and a, and a drive and a passion that is uh, inspirational. And uh, his, his work, which will go on, was tremendous. I mean, he did so much and he carried some movements um, when there was, there was very little... Um, uh, sign of of, of uh, resistance being mounted, and uh, he got messages out, and and he and he built mass protests, um, uh, not single-handed, but um, his contribution was was immense. Uh, absolutely, um, and uh, Vanessa, you got any thoughts? No, I mean just the same, really. Just a large. I mean, I only met him a few times, but um, what a powerhouse and what uh, a complete dedication to whatever cause he picked up, and an inspiration to anyone that worked with him. A tremendous guy, and he'll be greatly missed. But I'm sure he's in a better place than we are right now. Uh, well, that may well be the case, uh, but. Uh, uh, David says his his legacy will continue. The alternative view conferences will continue, uh, and uh, there is a team uh, of people working on that on this year's alternative view conference, and they absolutely have uh, the UK columns 100% support. So that is going to happen this year, and we look forward to it. Um, let's uh, let's head over to Syria then, uh, Vanessa, and uh, well, of course, the first thing as Patrick uh, reported briefly on. At the end of Friday's uh, program, uh, the first thing Joe Biden has done uh, has been to bomb uh, Syria. So uh, this is Kavor Kalmasian's tweet saying Biden bombed the border control point near Abu Kamal uh, to send a message to Syria, Iraq and Iran that this trade route will not uh, be active uh, before a grand compromise. Um, so bring us up to date on this. Well, you know, 40 days into Biden's presidency, he violates international law. I mean, I, I haven't checked it up against every single other president that has gone before him, but of course they, their expertise is in violating international law while sitting on the UN Security Council. Um, so basically Biden um, issued instructions for the US Air Force to bomb Al-Bukamal on the border with Iraq. In theory, and, and the astounding thing was how this was basically spewed out as justification for this violation of international law by every single uh, NATO-aligned, state-aligned media uh, in the US and in the UK, including, of course, the BBC, that this was in retaliation against uh, an attack on a US 
uh, occupation base inside Iraq, well inside Iraq, nowhere near the Syria border, um, because of the injury to, I think, four or five U.S. contractors and the death of one. Now, this despite the fact that, of course, Iraq for some time, and that has increased since the assassination by Trump of uh, Qasem Soleimani last year, um, Iraq has been demanding that the U.S. vacate Iraq and take their military with them. And as Peter Ford pointed out, the military itself is no longer an asset inside Iraq. It is uh, a liability for the U.S. And as Peter Ford also said to me, were uh, Biden a statesman, he would have ignored the attack on, on Erbil in Iraq. He would have used it as a reason to get Iran back to the table on the nuclear deal that he claims he wants to return to, that, of course, was abandoned uh, pretty much by Trump. Um, and he would have used it as some kind of negotiation um, pawn in, in, the, in the chess game with Iran over negotiations. In fact, what he's done is to demonstrate his weakness. He's obviously been pressured by the neocon elements within his administration. No great surprise there. Um, and he's carried out an attack with the flimsy justification that, one, it was in retaliation, Two, it is a preemptive strike against Iranian proxies. By the way, one Iraqi PMU uh, soldier was killed in this attack. No Iranian militia were killed in this attack. The PMU has been instrumental in fighting ISIS inside Iraq and on the border with Syria. So effectively, Biden wiped out one of uh, the Iraqi um, military uh, unit members that has been consistently fighting ISIS that the US and the UK claim to be fighting inside Syria. Um, so we have a couple of images here. I mean, the, the, the damage, was it, was it particularly targeted? Um, the damage, the, the infrastructure damage was considerable. Yes, right. as I said, one life was lost, not the 17 or 22 lives that were claimed again by Pentagon-aligned uh, media, which included, again, the PBC, which, of course, just basically spewed out everything they were told to say about the attack and did no investigation whatsoever. But that applies across the board to the media. Um, how close did it, was this to the military base? It was a long way. I can't remember the exact um, kilometres, but was it 300, more than 300? Yeah, it certainly. It. It, says there would be a, <laughs> it says it would be a... A six-hour uh, journey. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah okay. Uh, so you know, and, and uh, but as I say, that this entire, this whole pretext of a war with Iran, um, which of course is being um, stoked by Israel. And yes, thank you. You brought up the fact that the U.S. has officially now brought Israel into CENTCOM. Now I say officially because, of course, Israel has been driving U.S. military adventurism in the region uh, since its existence. But now our, it has been made official. The U.S. brings Israel into CENTCOM to make decisions effectively on the targets uh, in the region. And that will include, of course, Iranian uh, militia, I'm using Israeli uh, terminology now, 
um, in Syria. The other thing, of course, uh, and which is very interesting, what this effectively means, if you read that actual report, is a formalization of the alliance between Sunni Islam, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the US, which is what I've been predicting for some time, that Israel will openly ally itself with the Muslim Brotherhood and the Wahhabi terrorist elements that have been destabilizing Syria for the last 10 years uh, in order to form an official front against what they perceive to be a threat against Israeli security, which is Iran. But this will not be a war against Iran directly. This will be a pretext to ramp up the aggression against Syria on the basis that they are targeting Iranian uh, proxies inside Syria and on the border with Iraq and inside Iraq, of course, as the PMU are perceived by the US and Israel as an Iranian proxy. And just on the back of that, last night, there were further Israeli attacks to the south of Damascus. Um, which, of course, complete silence about in the British uh, and other Western mainstream press. I challenge you to find a report on that in the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed. Okay, thanks for that. Stay with us, Vanessa, because we're going to be coming back to the BBC and you personally uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but David, uh, let's come back to Scotland. And of course, the Salmon Inquiry is finally starting to uh, uh, get some traction in the mainstream press. Uh, but we're going to kick off with a wonderful image of uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Isn't it great? This is uh, all around Scottish political media and uh, political Twitter at the moment. And in fact, quite a number of people have been adopting this as the profile pictures um, online. Um, so there we go, a, a wonderful image of Nicola Sturgeon. Um, and uh, it's been quite a week for her. Um, finally, we had Alex Salmon before the Salmon Inquiry and uh, the, the inquiry into the mishandling of the uh, um, allegations of abuse uh, made by um, civil servants within the Scottish government uh, concerning Mr. Salmon. And um, uh, this first clip we have here is his introductory comments uh, to the inquiry. Uh, well, look, just just before we do show that, just just very briefly, uh, why why is this a why is this a problem for Nicola Sturgeon? There are many aspects to this. Um, there's, there's some simple things like she seems to have lied to Parliament, in which case she has to resign. Um, there is very firm evidence that the name of one of the complainers um, was handed over to Alex Salmon's team by Nicola Sturgeon's team. Uh, very early in the process, and that name should have been kept confidential. So that's a, a betrayal of the woman who made the complaint. Um, but it goes much deeper because we see um, corruption showing up within the Crown Office, whose, whose conduct has been just unbelievable, as they've constantly acted and used their power as the both the government's legal advisor and the home of all criminal prosecution in Scotland. Um, to target people trying to bring evidence to a parliamentary inquiry, to silence people, to redact information, to prevent the inquiry having information. So it all starts to look like this horrendous cover-up. Um, the relationship and the conduct of the Scottish Civil Service, senior people in the Scottish Civil Service, especially Leslie Evans, the head of the service, 
um, again looked to be utterly indefensible. And all through this time, Nicola Sturgeon has presided over the entire mess and has the view that there's nothing to see here, move along. And her position is becoming ever more untenable and the cries for her to resign are growing louder by the day. Uh, okay, so let's just uh, have a look at the first uh, little bit from, uh, from Alex Salmond here. Thank you very much, convener. Three important points required to be made at the outset. Firstly, this inquiry is not about me. I've already established the illegality of the actions of the Scottish Government in the Court of Session, and I've been acquitted of all criminal charges by jury in the highest court in the land. These are both the highest courts in the land, the highest civil court and the highest criminal court. The remit for this inquiry is about the actions of others. as an investigation into the conduct of ministers, the permanent secretaries, civil servants and special advisers. It also requires to shine a light on the activities of the Crown Office and to examine the unacceptable conduct of those who appear to have no understanding of the importance of separation of party and government and prosecution authorities and indeed of the rule of law itself. It was the government who were found to have been acted unlawfully, unfairly and tainted by apparent bias. I note that the First Minister asserts that I have to prove a case. I don't. That has already been done. There have been two court cases, two judges, one jury. In this inquiry, it's the Scottish Government, a government which has already admitted to behaving unlawfully, who are under examination. Uh, so it, he's very much highlighting the destruction of separation of powers in Scotland. Yes, a destruction that he is himself uh, culpable in, and, and he promoted. Name person, for example, was uh, under uh, was started under his watch, um, and was a huge um, blurring of the line between the private and the public, uh, between what is. And no one else's business but your own and what the state can intervene in. Um, so he is to some extent reaping what he's sown, uh, but he's perfectly correct in the nature of the problem is that the, the lines between party, state, which is a territorial monopolist of violence, and the uh, state prosecutor, um, which, is, which uses the entire criminal justice system, those lines are blurred and the rule of law in Scotland is essentially no longer operating. So, you know, th these are significant points and illustrates just, just the, the magnitude of the problem that's been shown by, by this crisis. Now, um, this crisis has been, has been created under Nicola Sturgeon's leadership, albeit the problems we're seeing here date back long before this. Uh, and, and long before the Scottish National Party were running the government as well, to be fair. Uh, the, these are, these are long-standing problems. Uh, but Nicola Sturgeon's role in this and her leadership style, this is very much in question. Now, the next clip gets to that. I watched an astonishment on Wednesday when the First Minister of Scotland, the First Minister of Scotland, used a COVID press conference, a COVID press conference, to effectively question the result of a jury. Still, I said nothing. Well, today, that changes. Now, 
the degree to which this decision by Nicola Sturgeon to go after Alex Salmon in that venue and in that way is, is, is beyond the pale has to be seen to, to be believed. The next clip is uh, Nicola's press conference. I do worry about not just the women in this case, um, whose voices have been silenced, whose motives have been maligned, who've been accused, or it seems to me to be uh, accused of being liars and conspiracists, and, and I think that is wrong. They came forward uh, with complaints. Uh, the the behaviour they complained of was found uh, by a jury not to constitute criminal conduct, and Alex Hammond is innocent of criminality, but that doesn't mean that the behaviour they claimed of uh, didn't happen. Now, th this, th I, I want just to emphasise what just happened there. Nicola Sturgeon said, the, the jury doesn't decide on facts. No, no, the facts are incontestable. Because an allegation's been made, that's it. These things happened. And what the jury does, and the Crown Office apparently couldn't do, is the jury decides whether they're actually criminal. One of the allegations was attempted rape. Is she trying to suggest that the Crown Office had no idea whether attempted rape was, was criminal and, and the jury decided it wasn't? It's insane. She's saying that the jury decides you're not guilty and she can go up in front of, a, in front of the world's press the next day and say, well, you did these things. It's just that the jury didn't think, you, you know, it, it passed, the, passed the bar for criminality. But you, you're still guilty. You still did them. This, this is taking the entire process of, of, of jury-led law and trashing it. This is a leader going so far beyond her authority, she can't even see her authority anymore. It, it was a remarkable outburst. Now, the... Sorry, when you go? No, no, you go ahead. Um, so, Alex Salmond um, continues, and, and he's, he's talking about the degree to which um, the, the, the matters at hand are significant and, um, and the degree to which the failure reflects on the leadership in Scotland. So, uh, that, that, that. But the reason I'm here today is because we can't turn that page nor move on until the decision-making which is undermining the system of government in Scotland is addressed. Competence and professionalism of the civil service matters. The independence of the Crown Office as acting in the public interest matters. Acting in accordance with legal advice matters. Concealing evidence from the courts matters. The duty of candour of public authorities matters. Democratic accountability through Parliament matters. Suppressing evidence from parliamentary committees matters. And yes, ministers telling the truth to Parliament matters. The day such things come to not matter would be a dark and dangerous one for Scotland. Now, the point that we've been making repeatedly over the last years is that these things do no longer matter to, this, to the powers that be in Scotland, and we are in those dark and dangerous times. Alex Salmon at least now has some inkling of that. Um, uh, but he, he, he goes on to talk about the leadership issue now. Some people say that the <clears throat> failures of these institutions, the blurring of the boundaries between party, government and prosecution service, mean that Scotland is in danger of becoming a failed state. I disagree. 
The Scottish civil servant hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. The Crown Office hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. Scotland hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. Now, here he's talking about the reality that we are not our government and they are not us. But he's also showing a touching naivety if he thinks that the, the, the um, lawlessness doesn't go deep into the Scottish um, public society and, and public governance and all of our major institutions. The Crown Office has been called institutionally corrupt for two decades now, and with good reason. Um, the sort of stitch-up that he's faced, things like um, trying to pause, it's called SIST in, in Scots law, trying to pause a civil case so that when you're going to lose, when you don't have a case, so that um, a criminal case, which you've orchestrated, comes, all, comes along and makes the civil case of, of, of no account or influences the civil case uh, hugely. Well, we've seen that in, in the Fresh Start Foundation, that same game being played by local authorities across Scotland. This is standard operating procedure. It's not just a matter of leadership, so he's wrong there. Um, but he, he's, he's right in the next area where he recognises a pattern of behaviour. The pattern is undeniable. The government refused to hand over documentation in the civil case. It required a commission to extract it from them. The permanent secretary was brought to give evidence under oath just to extract documents she had a duty to provide to the court. The government ignored the provisions of a search warrant in the criminal case, and despite the impact on the administration of justice, still withheld key documents which should have been put before the jury. This committee has been blocked and tackled at every turn with calculated and deliberate suppression of key evidence. Even Parliament, <clears throat> our Scottish Parliament, has been defied despite two votes demanding the external legal advice, legal advice that the public have paid for. My evidence has been published, then subsequently censured by intervention of the Crown Office, evidence that they had previously agreed was lawful. And even today, I appear before you under the explicit threat of prosecution if I reveal evidence for which the committee has asked. Not to fulfil my oath and tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, would be a contempt. But Crown Office says it might lead to prosecution. People should just stop and think for a moment about that. The ability of any witness before any parliament to tell the truth and fulfil their oath is effectively being questioned by the Crown Office. The truth is those that now demand to see evidence have invested a great deal of time and public money in attempting to hide that evidence. Now, those who are seeking to, who are demanding evidence now, that means Nicola Sturgeon. And Nicola Sturgeon has led a government that has used, for example, the power of the Crown Office um, to threaten people to prevent them telling the truth under oath to a parliamentary inquiry. Any other country, she'd be gone. If that happened in Westminster, they would, they would, the MPs, weak as they are, would rise up. And it's been happening in Scotland for years. And only now is 
is some realisation of the severity of the situation starting to become more widely known. Um, so that's, that's where we're at. Um, it, uh, Mr Salmon did finish off with, with um, an offer to the committee to say uh, all these bits of information, all these, all these documents that you've been trying to get, um, that you, you, you can't get from the government and the Crown Office are barring you access to, um, why don't you um, send an order to my lawyers uh, for these? My lawyers would be delighted to give you all the documents. And in fact, the documents um, preventing me releasing the documents, you could ask for them too. We'll give you the lot um, and you can have them by Monday morning. So we'll see what happens there. I think that's called dynamite fishing. Um, and uh, we'll see Nicola Sturgeon will be up this week uh, in front of the same committee and uh, going back to her line that there's nothing to see here and that Alex Salmon is a liar. I'd have to say he came across extremely well in that committee. There was uh, quite a number of SNP members on the committee who were extremely hostile to him. He handled that very well and he was uh, convincing. Uh, I have to say there's... Uh Probably a few people within the Scottish uh, establishment uh, that would be critical of China. And bearing, <laughs> bearing in mind the state of uh, government in Scotland at the moment, uh, I don't think they're really in a position. No, I, and, and this, I mean, so many questions we've got. The, the, coming up shortly, uh, there's going to be a, 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 another, this will be the third demand for some of the documents which have been withheld from that committee to be handed over to the committee. Now, the committee members have seen them. They know what's in them. They know they're vital. But unless the way the committee works, unless they are officially published by the committee, they cannot be referred to in any way in the final report. It's as if they do not exist. Um, this, this week, we'll see the third um, uh, attempt to have a vote of no confidence against the Deputy First Minister who's blocking the release of, this, of these documents, John Swinney, um, and uh, to, to see if they can remove him from office. We will see. It all depends on the Green Party and whether they continue to support the, the SNP. Um, John Swinney, uh, also please watch the UK column later in the week. We'll have an article on John Swinney uh, and his relationship with the Crown Office and further attempts to pervert the course of justice. And um, I hope everyone watches for that. Um, and uh, the ongoing uh, scenario uh, will, will continue. One of the things, though, that we will be coming back to is the, the case made and published on a website by Robert Green. Uh, regarding the relationship between the current Permanent Secretary, Leslie Evans, and the case against Dame Elise Angelini. Now, Dame Elise Angelini is one of the people who oversee the ministerial code. She is charged with investigating the ministers if there's any wrongdoing. She is the ultimate end stop to make sure that there's no, there's no sign of any, um, of any corruption in Scottish public life at the very highest levels. But, the, but Leslie Evans is preventing us from seeing the documentation that Dame Elise Angelini put forward to claim £64,000 worth of government money so she could carry out uh, a defamation case against Robert Green over the Holly Gregg, case, or Holly Gregg affair. Robert Green believed, and I think with good reason, that that statement made to justify those funds may well have included falsehoods. And if it did, 
that would mean that De Melisa Angelini, who's charged with overseeing the ministerial code and making sure everything's above board, is herself part of the, uh, the corrupt Scottish state. But we, we don't know if that's the case because Wesley Evans, the permanent secretary, won't even talk to us about releasing the document that needs to be there, that should be a matter of public record, and there's a huge public interest in seeing. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, David, thank you very much for that. We'll keep a very close eye on it. Now, uh, let's just uh, end with, uh, with ethics and journalism. And uh, the BBC, of course, uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, in fact, in, in November, uh, published a series of uh, podcasts uh, called Mayday. Uh, and uh, I believe it was episode four featured Vanessa quite heavily. In fact, it may have been all about her. Um, well, this uh, series of podcasts has now been followed up with an article uh, on the BBC called uh, Mayday, How the White Helmets and James Lemerserie uh, Got Pulled Into a Deadly Battle for Truth. Um, and the first thing to note about it is how much content there seems to be from Emma Winberg, uh, Le Majeure's wife, uh, and uh, lots of, uh, of images uh, of happier times, perhaps. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it doesn't take long before they start uh, getting back onto the target, uh, which, of course, is Vanessa. But uh, the f one thing that was very interesting was they decided to publish uh, uh, an image uh, of a pink Volkswagen Beetle, which they described as Vanessa Bailey's car. Um, and when that... Uh, image was published um, initially, uh, the, uh, well, the number plate was absolutely readable. Uh, and, uh, well, the first thing to clarify, Vanessa, is, uh, is this your car? Well, as I said, as I said in my email to um, um, Chloe Hachimatio and Emma Rippon, who was her uh, line manager, um, I also contacted Hugh Levinson, who's higher up the tree than Emma Rippon. He referred me back to Emma Rippon after I emailed all three. Um, that in Syria, it's impossible for a foreign national to buy or own a car. So therefore, no, this car is owned by a Syrian civilian. I use it on a daily basis as my car. Um, but by publishing this image with the surrounding context in the BBC article, they have drawn attention to both myself, but also, as you rightly said, they initially published the, the actual number plate. So it's very easy to trace the actual owner of the vehicle, who is a colleague of mine. Because so that's it, public it, record. It that's, that, sorry, that, sorry that, that is public record in Syria. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so uh, look, David, this looks to me like uh, a line has been significantly crossed. Uh, so uh, just before I show the email and the response that I sent to, to Chloe, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, the, the, here we have a, a, a controversial journalist speaking in a, who's, who's writing and working in a charged political area in the middle of um, what the BBC describe as a civil war. Um, my thoughts are they're putting Vanessa's life at risk. I find it, uh, I think I'll go a little bit further. I find it very hard to uh, assume that that wasn't the intention because the BBC uh, has over the years been very careful to make sure that 
for example, when they've been outside Jeremy Corbyn's house, uh, that you don't see the, the address specifically, that you don't see the number of plates of cars and so on. This is, seems like normal journalistic practice. But look, here's, uh, this is what I sent to the BBC uh, on Saturday. Dear Chloe, could you please advise, uh, provide answers to the following questions? Please consider this an on-the-record media inquiry. With respect to the article, exactly what contribution did Emma Winberg make to the content of the article? Uh, what legal advice was taken before publication of the article? Uh, did you and your editors discuss the implications of publishing an image of the car on a major article such as this, particularly but not limited to implications for Vanessa's personal safety? Uh, if such discussions took place, what conclusions were reached? And what policies does the BBC have in place with regard to the display of car number plates for vehicles owned by the subject of BBC content? Uh, deadline for answers is midday on Monday. Uh, and uh, this is uh, Chloe's response uh, on screen, as you can see. Uh, complete silence. Uh, we have tumbleweed. Uh, and so uh, that is it. Um, I don't really know what more to say. Uh, I'm assuming that at some point, uh, Vanessa, they will actually respond uh, to that, uh, or maybe not, maybe they don't want to. But what interested me was that uh, uh, not long after that uh, email went in, uh, they did blur out the, uh, the, the number plate. But of course, by that stage, it was already doing the rounds of social media. Yeah, and you know it's been picked up, of course, by the usual suspects um, like Idris Ahmed, etc. What I call NATO thugs on uh, social media, and of course they're running with it. Um, so that alone, of course, provides greater targeted harassment. And I actually put in my email, it appears very much as the, the intended result would be that I would be targeted, or the owner of the car would be targeted inside Syria prove me wrong. And uh, I am tomorrow morning uh, speaking to a lawyer in the UK to take this further because, you know, the BBC effectively consistently bullies those that challenge um, the Foreign Office narrative in every possible arena, but particularly on Syria. And at some point, we as the, you know, the minnows, in this, we don't have the backing or the resources that BBC journalists have. I mean, effectively, they are totally protected. They can break the law, they can break their own ethical code, they can violate their own guidelines um, because they know they are protected by one of the most powerful media institutions in the world. We don't have that protection, but at the same time, when a wrong is committed, we have the right to, to challenge that wrong, and I will be doing so, and I have informed them that I will be doing so. Uh, and yes, and so for anybody uh, in doubt, uh, Ofcom actually covers this. Um, so Ofcom is uh, normally about broadcast media, uh, so anything that's uh, broadcast on television or on radio, but actually in this case, uh, they also cover material which is on the BBC website. Um, so perhaps uh, uh, it might be appropriate to uh, to make a complaint to Ofcom and actually put them on the spot and see whether how, what their reaction is to this. Uh, David, look, we're absolutely out of time, but uh, let's just uh, end uh, with this image. Yes, this is uh, Sturgeon and Salmon and uh, the, the uh, never-ending circle of, uh, of attack um, as seen by a cartoonist, and that rather sums up this week, although perhaps a little unfair to Alex Salmond, 
who seems to be at least in part realising the nature of the Scottish state and the magnitude of, uh, of the issues that are actually involved. Um, yes. Okay, look, David, uh, I forgot to ask just before the programme, are we doing an extras today? Oh, yes. Right, okay. We will be back on the uh, UK Column website if you are a member uh, for extra in about 10 minutes' time. Um, thank you very much to Vanessa for joining us. Thank you, David, uh, and thank you for joining us. We'll be back at the same time, 1pm as usual on Wednesday, and Brian will be back in the studio uh, as well. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.